You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. If you've got a Bible, I would love it now if you could turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, I'm going to jump straight in because Peter, who was uh, the one that they relied upon for these stories, was very much like that. I started last week the costly story, and I would say this is the costly story section 2. I'm going to read the first 31 verses of Mark chapter 10. In my Bible, it's got the title, Divorce. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judah. And across the Jordan, again, crowds of people came to him. And as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses Command you, he replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and become united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. The little children and Jesus. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never receive it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. The rich young man. As Jesus entered on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Peter replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mother, children, and fields, <laughs> and with them persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Let's pray. Jesus, I've so often thought I would love to have sat at your feet and heard this when you first spoke it. I thank you that you are alive today and that you speak to us. We almost want to be sat at your feet right now and as we chew over this and say, Jesus, what are you saying to us? I pray that we'll hear you. We felt so challenged already in this time of worship of surrendering all and coming to you. Help us to hear this from your word as well in Jesus' name. Amen. Divorce. Contentious, I guess. The Pharisees here are asking questions. Who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were mostly middle-class businessmen. They accepted the written word of God as the inspired word of God. But they also looked for oral traditions and teaching. They were sort of the authority of the day. So they turn up to Jesus and almost set a trap. It's a test. They ask a question. I don't even know why they're asking the questions. William Barclay, who's a commentator that I read a lot on this, said that as a true Jew, you knew this. Every Jew must surrender his life rather than commit idolatry, murder, or adultery. That was what a true Jew was. Surrender your life rather than commit idolatry, murder, or adultery, adultery. And yet they're asking this question. In fact, there was a saying amongst true Jews that the very altar... This was the most holy place of God. The very altar shed tears when a man divorced the wife of his youth. And yet, the Pharisees have split into two camps. So basically, you've got this camp led by a guy called Shammai, who was very strict. And they were basically saying, no, 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 you cannot get divorced. The the altar of God cries if you do. And then you had this other camp which was led by a Pharisee called Hillel, and that was very lenient. And basically, you could get rid of your wife for anything. Literally, if she spoke to a strange man in the street, fine, write a certificate, get rid of her. If she burnt your dinner, write a certificate, get rid of her. And so in those days, you had these two camps going on. People were interested in their rights rather than their responsibilities. And I guess we can relate to that today. So suddenly, this thing has become an academic question. What about divorce? Academic, but maybe not. Because the place that this question is asked, if you 
saw right there, he went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. So who else had been asked about divorce in this area? Well, we know it was John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been asked about, what do you think about Herod and what he's doing taking somebody else's wife? John the Baptist gives an answer and loses his life over that. And so suddenly it's not just an academic thing. This is a very contentious thing. Right in the midst of this, Jesus answers with a question. What did Moses say? And of course, we know that he talks about the written permission of Moses. And if you wanted to look that up in the Old Testament, that's in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, it's about writing a certificate. He referred to that. But he also refers to the command of Moses. You see, he quotes Genesis 2, verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother. They believe that Moses wrote Genesis. So rather than just going to the permission of Moses, he's also saying, well, actually, this is what Moses commanded. Jesus doesn't compromise, but he does leave a mystery. I'm going to leave that part of the scripture and move on. I will come back. The next bit that we read about was Jesus and the little children. The little children came to Jesus. I found this picture this week. There were no pictures when Jesus was around. But I really like this one because you've got this little kid just sat behind Jesus listening away. I, I mentioned last week that children were not center stage in biblical times. In fact, if you didn't want your child, you could just leave them in the street. It wasn't unusual for children literally to be left there. And people would go and collect children that others didn't want. They could turn them into gladiators. They could turn them into prostitutes. Or they would maim them and turn them into beggars. That's how they felt about children in that day and age. Very different to today. And yet these these parents were bringing these children to Jesus. They just thought, oh, Jesus, if you could just touch my child... That would be amazing. The man of God has touched my child. The disciples rather selfishly think, get away. We're going to keep Jesus to ourselves. No. I love this, don't you? The disciples don't think it's a good idea, so what do they do? They just wade in and start rebuking. Get away. Can you imagine sort of 12 men to these sort of women? Oh, clear off. I love it. Mark, he doesn't hide the emotions of Jesus. He doesn't hide the mistakes of the disciples. Jesus doesn't ask a question. Jesus doesn't say, do you think that's nice behavior, boys? What does Jesus do? He tells the disciples to stop. He takes the He doesn't just touch them. He takes them in his arms. He blesses them. It, it, It almost talks, they said in the Greek, about he blesses them fervently. Don't just get a touch. Hey, I want you to come in close. The rich young man. The third story that Mark has put here together. It's interesting because we all refer to the rich young man, but it didn't tell us that in the passage. You see, this story is so popular, it's in three of the Gospels. It's actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. From Matthew, we learn that he's young. From Luke, we learn that he's a ruler. Basically, he's doing well. He's positioned himself. He's got status. He's got comfort. Externally, everything is going right. He runs to Jesus. You were not supposed to run in those days. You know what I'm saying? This whole jogging phase had not taken off in Bible times. There were no Nike trainers for men. 
You were supposed to walk. That was dignity. Suddenly he was running to Jesus. Externally he was doing, He threw himself on the floor. Externally he was doing well. It says he'd obeyed the law since a child. That was probably since he was 13. That's when you change from being a child to a man. All the disciples would have looked at him and thought, God has blessed him. Why? Because he was rich. And for many, money was considered the blessing of God. Jesus himself looks at him and loves him. Yet he comes to Jesus as a good teacher. And what does he ask Jesus? What do I do? Not what have you done? And suddenly money is his downfall. The rabbis had a teaching in those days that you were not to give more than 20% of your income. Because they felt that if you gave away more than 20% of what you earned, you could become a burden in society. And so they used to cap giving at 20%. There's been a survey done, and they reckon in the UK most Christians give 1%. Ollie, we're nowhere near as close as the rabbis. But Jesus comes back and says, forget the 1%, forget the 20%. I'm asking for the 100%, the lot. C.T. Studd, he was a British cricketer who became a missionary, died in 1931. He, he had so much money in the days when you wrote checks, it took him three days to write enough checks to give away his entire wealth. Some of you, it wouldn't take five minutes. He was loaded. He says this, either I had to be a thief and keep what wasn't mine, or else I had to give up everything to God. When I came to see that Jesus had died for me, it didn't seem hard to give it all up for him. I do not believe in this passage that Jesus is about poverty. I believe that he's challenging us on discipleship. And then this whole saying comes up, eye of a needle. Now, if you've been around church for a long time, you've probably heard people try and explain the eye of a needle. I mean, it couldn't be a camel through a needle, could it? Maybe it was a gate that went into Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, and the camel had to get down on his knees and take all his luggage off. I think we just try and explain away the humor of Scripture. When I was reading a commentary this week, they said, actually, if Jesus was alive today, he'd say, I want you to put the whole ocean into a milk bottle. Or actually, I'd like you to put a whole Ferrari through a letterbox. Most of us would say, what? Impossible. Yes, exactly the point I want you to get, says Jesus. These things are impossible. So what do I see as the link? What do I believe God is speaking to us and challenging us about this morning as the link of these three passages? I feel challenged myself. And I feel God will want to challenge each of us. Each of these passages, as I will try and explain now, I believe deals with idolatry. The cost of following Jesus is breaking idols. Calvin, who was a great preacher 500 years ago, he said the human heart is an idol factory. We end up creating all these idols, things that we worship in the place of God. Now, you might say, that is not me. 
And the Jews, the Pharisees, would have said it was not them. When the Romans marched into Jerusalem, they had these standards that the army were carrying, massive great banners. And on all of these banners were pictures of Roman gods. Well, the Jews, who said, we have no idols, opposed this and said, we don't want you bringing your pictures of Roman gods into our city. And so what they decided to do is the, the Roman invaders decided to surround this huge crowd of Jewish men and women. They had soldiers three deep. Well, you can read about this. This was Pontius Pilate when he went into Jerusalem. And, and he said to them, I want you all to know that actually... You are to worship these. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. To which they reckon the whole crowd in Jerusalem fell to their knees, took their collar down, and thought, kill me now. Because they said, we don't want idols in our city. Pontius Pilate was so shocked by the behavior of the crowd, he removed all the standards. He still ruled, but he suddenly realized these people are not into idolatry. So on the external, they'd paid a great price not to have idols in their city, but I wonder in their heart whether that had really taken place. Ezekiel, which was a prophet in the Old Testament, says this, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? And so it's funny because they've almost said, we don't want these idols, but we do. So although they said, actually, and if I said to any of you today, you might say, no, no, Pete, I've got no idols. I would just like to take a moment and have a look at this. I think the whole thing about divorce, the challenges today, our idol is we believe in romantic love. We sing songs about it. We watch films about it. We have stories about it. We, we, there's the whole thing of friends with benefits. So that is our idol. Our idol is romantic love. We put that up and say, actually, I'm not sure I want marriage God's way. Phil Moore, he's another commentator I read. He's a pastor. He's an author. He lives in London. He says, we worship an idol whenever we turn something that God has created into something primary instead of secondary. That can, be, that can be sex, that can be marriage. As I said, the Jews said we're not having idols, but what was the center of Jerusalem? It was the temple. Who'd built the temple? Well, it had been destroyed once. It was built the second time by Herod. Why did Herod build it? He built it so that actually he could control the place. Hey, you can have your temple, but I'm in charge. The Sadducees that ended up running the temple had basically cut a deal with Herod so they were in charge. So although they might have said, hey, we don't want any of these idols, they still grasped for power. A child had no power in that society. There is a breaking of power, I believe, the idol of power, when you come to Christ like a child. Oh, yeah, it's not about me being in charge. It's about me coming as a child. John Stott, he was an English leader and preacher, says at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. How do we break the idol of power and instead humbly come? 
I guess finally, the, the, the rich young man, it's the idol of wealth. I can buy, I will pay, I have earned. I guess the challenge for us in London is we have plenty to live on, but little to live for. And the danger is that we get more and more, and I read this uh, study, I can't remember, it was like from the 1950s to the 1990s, they reckon the income of most people had doubled, but satisfaction had not changed at all. Because we've sold out for this idol of wealth. And what are we really about? Tim Chester, he's a, a British author and church planter, says, we've baptized the lie of consumerism and expect God to provide all that we want. I would like to suggest this morning the cost of following Jesus Christ, the cost of being a part of this great story, that the book of Mark, is that we therefore need to break idols in our life. It could be the idol of money, the idol of laziness, the idol of being a chauvinist. So I went to the shop this week and I decided to buy an idol. They wrapped it up for me, which was really nice. Okay, it's a piggy bank. I suddenly felt challenged. I think, if I had to think about a demonstration of this story, how do I bring it? Oh, actually, we often, you put your money in. It's almost like that's the idol. Actually, I could be a chauvinistic pig. Actually, it's about me and I don't care about you. We can see enough of, of that in the media at this time. But an idol could be anything. I, read a, I was reading a book this week. It's called Global Humility. And there they were saying in the West, one of our idols is efficiency. We want things to be so efficient, we don't have time for other people and authentic community. That's now become our idol because community takes time. Let's be honest, our idol could well be intelligence. You know what, if, if I get another degree, if I do this, actually, if, if I'm able to think it through, that becomes my idol. Some of us, it's our body. You know what I'm saying? We, you know, well, I, I can't eat with you because actually, uh, oh, my body, I, I've got to go to the gym five times a week. I haven't got time necessarily to do this community Bible reading that people are all talking about, but actually I've got to work out. We have all these idols that we can end up developing. If we're really honest, for many, it's the idol of comfort over cause. I'll be very careful because um, you give an example like this and we get in trouble, but why would the people break out of a train in Lewisham and walk the track? Because actually it's me and my life. And I could be putting myself at danger other people, but I don't care. It's my comfort. I'll get off and go whenever I want. Oh, of course, none of us would do that. Obviously, that's other bad people there. If I asked you the truth, what's the idol? What's the thing that you've built in your life? I, I could go on and on. It could be screens. Man alive. It's amazing. You don't have to wait a week to get the next one in the series. If you've got Netflix, you can watch a whole box set in one binge of an afternoon. My idol is suddenly my screen time. Actually, my idol is my kids. Oh, if my kids are doing well, it makes me look good. Oh, golly. I mean, if my kids come first in sport, 
when my kids are picked to perform in assembly? What has become our idol? Idols are good things that become God things. And so this morning is, what do we do with them? Do we just decide that we're going to wrap them up and put them away? Do we just leave it to one side? You see, I think the danger with leaving an idol to one side is if you look at the passage, all of these idols stopped people connecting with God. The kids couldn't get because of the idol of selfishness. The guy with the money couldn't get to God because the money got in the way. Divorce. Well, I actually believe that marriage reflects God. Two in one reflects a God who is three in one. And by actually breaking that, we're breaking our understanding of who God is. That's the danger with all of these idols. How do we respond? Well, I guess there's two ways of responding. One is you just despair. You suddenly think, oh golly, I'm terrible. I can never change. This will define me. Even this morning as I'm speaking about these idols, you suddenly think, oh golly, I despair, Pete. I'm in trouble. That's one response. The other response is denial. I, I don't understand what you're talking about. I've got no idea whatsoever. I am perfect. I bury my head in the sand. I pretend to everyone that I am okay. How do you respond to your idols this morning? If Jesus was here and he was sifting through your life, how would you respond? Well, I'd like to suggest there's one true response to an idol. That's to smash it. I know health and safety, I shouldn't be doing it. And the trustees will tell me off, I'm sure. And if you like piggy banks, I'm really <laughs> sorry. Because I think biblically, the way we should deal with an idol is to break it. Oh, that's a bit shocking. That's a bit violent. That causes a bit of a mess. The danger is that we think we can go through life and keep the idol with us. And what Jesus is really saying is actually... Nothing must come before him. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says this, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to help pay the price to break the idol. How did he do that? He did that by dying on a cross. And he didn't just say, oh, look, that's fine. Wrap your idol up. Actually, he wants to say, I want to break it completely so that you are free to serve me. I think that's the challenge. It is a costly thing. Someone suggested I should have filled it with 20 peas. I said the danger is the church would have just had a scramble because actually we want to try and save something, salvage something from this money bank. Now actually I believe this is a radical story. And Jesus isn't saying, look, just keep your idol comfortably on the side. He's saying, actually, will you follow me first? Denying all else. Jesus, you are my number one. I surrender all. I didn't know they were going to do that song this morning. I've been singing it most this week because I'm always aware before I speak to anyone else, I want to be challenged myself. 
how real would you like me to go? We can cut it all off. It won't go on, online. I'd like you to go away and think, oh, great sermon. Oh, golly, is that my idol? What's yours this morning? Will I let God smash them completely? Actually, I surrender all. Jesus, we do want to come to you right now. Some of us, our idols are not just small little things. They've grown massive. They dominate our lives. They impact our friendships. They shape our thinking. I pray that you'd help us to be a part of your story and to break these idols. We don't want good things getting in the way of God. We believe, Jesus, you said, actually, we're to deny all and to follow you. The pearl of great price, we sell everything for you. We thank you it's not about us doing enough. We thank you even now, you know, oh, can we do it all? We thank you, Jesus, because you died on the cross, we can know this. We thank you that we can apply your victory to our life. I ask that you'd help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.